First Peter chapter 5, our text this morning is verses 1 to 4. My guess is that your story is not that dissimilar from mine in that when I think back on the things that have really shaped me as a person, <clears throat> as a man, as a husband, more than any sermon, more than any book, more than any education, I think it's safe to say that it was particular people in the right moment whose life intersected with mine that left an indelible impression on me. For some of you, that's really what Mother's Day is all about. Your mom was the single most formative person in your life. Even if she wasn't, you can probably think of other people who have had that kind of effect on you. Sort of a constellation of people in my life that have deeply impacted me. My dad, who helped me understand what it meant to be a selfless husband, a godly man. Even to this day, when I hear the water running with dishes in the sink, I can't help but jump up and help because that's what my dad did. It's what men do. They help with dishes. Amen, wives? So that was your chance. Come on. I like, sent that one to you. I was, Happy Mother's Day. That's it. So, okay. My, uh, my home church pastor taught me the beauty of what it means to be a, a pastoral diplomat, a man who understood people but also understood the word and how to help walk people through challenging circumstances. A premarital counselor just kind of blew my mind with the application of scripture. And my seminary mentor, Jim Greer, who is the reason I'm even here today, who first told me about College Park Church and who through his unpacking of categories of theology helped to build my understanding of what the church could be. When I'm in a crisis, and I bet you do this too, or when I've got a sticky situation that I'm dealing with, I'll often think this thought, so what would so-and-so say if they were in this position right now? Kind of think back on what would they do? The beautiful thing is, is that God uses other people to shape us, to form us. He uses them to guide us through various seasons of our lives. There are very few things more important than the people that God places in our lives. And there are very few things that are more important to the church than the people that he places in positions of responsibility and authority whose charge is to guide and direct the church. Having the right people in the right positions to be able to make the right decisions for the sake of the church is the only way that the church really is protected. Constitutions help, good policies, all of those things. But at the end of the day, what you need, according to the Bible, is the right kind of people to help you navigate the challenges of life. And that's why it's so important that we understand what Peter says in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 5, because this letter was written to churches that were in crisis. And what people need as they navigate various difficulties in culture is clear, godly leadership. People who can step into the chaos and say, this is how we ought to think. People who can step into your pain, who can step into your sorrow, people who can help you navigate the valleys of life and walk with you through those seasons. So today what I want to do is to walk you through this passage. I've got three particular goals that are important for you to keep in mind as we walk through this text. 
The first goal is I want you to understand what's happening in 1 Peter chapter 5, what exegetically is taking place. Secondly, to understand how as elders at College Park Church, we've been thinking about this passage because we've been wrestling with this passage and a couple of others for about two years. And then third, what's your role as we consider what we find in this particular passage? So there's three particular questions that I want to answer. Question one, who leads the church? Question two, what do church leaders do? Question three, how do church leaders lead? So who leads the church, what do leaders do, and how do leaders lead? Question one, who leads the church? Chapter five continues a theme that we've heard in chapter four regarding the internal culture of the church. Last week we were in verses 12 to 19 about what it means to suffer and how to suffer well. The church that Peter is writing to, or rather the churches that he writes to, are facing persecution of some kind. Not abject persecution, but their culture around them is changing and they're feeling the pressure of that. And in those sorts of moments, leadership clarity is really important. So Peter says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. So the first answer to the first question, who leads the church, is fairly elementary. Elders lead the church. Now you need to know this is not a new concept to Peter's letter in fact, there is a consistency throughout the New Testament regarding the essential positions of leadership in the church. The vision, biblically, is that the church would be led by godly elders who are providing spiritual care and are supported and helped by godly deacons who are helping in the practical needs of the ministry. Now, this word elder in verse 1 is the word presbyteros. You might hear the English word Presbyterian in it. Its meaning comes from an Old Testament model. We have a New Testament word, but it's got an Old Testament background where the heads of families, older men, would gather to hear information and to provide leadership for the, the people of Israel or in the New Testament, the church. In Exodus chapter three, we see kind of the early beginnings of this where the elders assembled together to meet with Moses when he delivered the news that God had told him that the people would be removed out of Egypt. He told them about the Exodus and the first people who Moses met with were the elders. In Exodus 19, when Moses has the Ten Commandments, the first group that he talks with and helps them understand the ten words are the elders. During the time of judges and the monarchy, it's the elders who meet often at the city gate to make decisions or to speak for the people or to deal with issues. And during the exile, when Israel is no more and they're scattered all over the world and now they have little synagogues, outposts, worship outposts that they're meeting in, it is the, the elders who give direction to those local little assemblies. And that assembly model eventually became the governing model when uh, Israel goes back to Jerusalem and we have what's known as the Sanhedrin, the assembly of religious and political leaders during Jesus' time. So this concept of eldership and the elders gathering is not a new one in the New Testament. It's really a, a culmination of what we see even in the Old Testament. 
But then, as the early church develops, we see this eldership begin to take on a new form. The the book of Acts records that the early church, especially the Jerusalem church, had elders. Acts 11 and verse 30 tells us that. Take your Bible, go over to Titus chapter 1, because what we see is a pattern. So Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, it's in your New Testament. Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, when... Paul leaves Titus on the island of Crete to plant churches. He wants them to go to various cities, and in those towns, as he plants churches, part of Titus's responsibility is to appoint elders. Verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he goes through and he lists the characteristics, the character qualities of these elders, and Titus needed to use that framework to pick the people who would be the elders of these churches. So the idea is that this this eldership is vital to the life of the church. It's part of what Paul intended when he said to put things in order. 1 Timothy 3 parallels Titus 1 in terms of the qualifications of an elder. In Acts chapter 14, we see that these elders operate in plurality. What that means is that while they may have different function, they have the same level of authority. So today, as an elder at College Park Church, I have a different function than our other elders. I'm preaching and teaching the Bible right now, but there are other elders performing other functions. doesn't mean that I have more authority. It means that I have a different function. And when we gather together, our elders operate on a level playing field in terms of authority, which means that not everything that I want to have happen at College Park Church actually does happen. I lose votes. I don't get my way, and you ought to be thankful for that, even though I'm not. So So the question is, who leads the church? And the answer is, the elders. Now, the text would help us to understand that this eldering involves uh, some key elements, and we'll get into those in a moment. But what you need to know is that the ultimate authority of the church rests not just with the elders, but really with the entire church. There's some forms of church governance. There's Episcopal form of governance. There's Presbyterian model of governance. We operate what's called a congregational model of governance, which means that we believe Matthew 16 and 18 indicates that God has given the keys of authority to the church. In order for someone to be put out of the church, they need to The church needs to be told about it and then to vote. So the ultimate authority rests with the church body. That's why when we gather in May for our quarterly members meeting, it's an important thing for you to be a part of if you're a member. It's the venue where the church lives out its view of authority and its model of governance. So it can summarize kind of our model of how we do things around here is this, that College Park Church is an elder-led but congregationally ruled church. So Peter describes himself as an elder. He says that he, in fact, is an elder, a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He's picking up in verse 1, back in 1 Peter 5, the the theme of suffering that has been woven throughout the entire letter of 1 Peter, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So it's interesting. Peter is actually an apostle, and he's an elder, but in this particular context, he just simply talks about being a fellow elder. The point of all this is simply that when, 
when Peter seeks to provide an exhortation for how the church is to be led in the midst of challenging and difficult circumstances, he speaks primarily to the elders. In other words, as this church, as our church, as any church, or as you as an individual face pressures and challenges, there's a need for, for godly leaders. A moment when the bottom falls out or you don't know what direction to go, that's the moment that you need to know that you've got godly leaders who can provide direction for your church and for its future. You know, one of the sad parts of getting older is the fact that many of my mentors have died. It's a sad reality. I mean, who, when you need the bat phone, who's going to be on the other end? Because I've used that phone. And I've needed that when I have challenging circumstances. For instance, I may have told this story before, but in my last church, we had a family that um, they got pregnant and they had six children that were conceived at once. They were called the Michigan sextuplets, the first sextuplets that ever had been conceived and uh, actually were, were born in the state. And when the news got out that this particular wonderful woman had six live children in her womb, it, it hit the, the, the news media and a radio station, in particular kind of like a shock jock sort of radio program. And they were making all sorts of negative comments, you know, that some of those kids should be aborted because they're all going to live on the state's dime, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the news media at large got a hold of it, found out that they were members of our church, and they called and they said, hey, we're going to send a news truck over to your church and we'd love to get what your take as a pastor is on this scenario in terms of, you know, contraception and fertilization and all of these children, everything else. So we'll be over there in about a half hour. <laughs> I was like, oh my goodness. So I picked up the phone and I, I called my mentor, Jim Greer, got, got his home phone number, dialed it, and oh, hallelujah, he was there. And, and I said, Dr. Greer, it's Mark Rogan. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Not... Not so good. Can I, I, I need to ask you advice on something. Sorry, what is it? I said, so told him the story, the sextuplets, et cetera, et cetera, and I've got the, the news media, and they're, they're, they're coming to the church in just a few minutes. He goes, okay, and so why are you calling? And I said, I'm, I'm calling because I need to know what I believe. <laughs> it's a true statement. He laughed on the other end, long silence, and I said, I'm not joking, like I need to know, what do I say? And so I took some notes down and when they came, I said exactly what he said and then Sunday people at church were like, wow, that was really good. I was like, yeah, I know, you know, so. <laughs> but to have those kind of people in your life is, is really, really important. Fast forward a number of years when our, I remember the moment when our, when our daughter died and we were headed out to um, the funeral home to make arrangements and this was back in the day before cell phones and voicemail. We had one of those, you know, voicemail uh, things with the cassette tape, you know. And as we're walking out, it goes beep. And I heard the voice of one of my mentors. He said, hey, Mark, it's John. I just want you to know we're praying. I've heard. I, I literally stopped, and I sat down in the seat around our kitchen table. I just started crying. To hear his voice in that moment was a ballast for my soul. And brothers and sisters, we need, you need those kind of spiritual leaders in your life who, when, when the bottom drops out, who can speak God's word into you, and Peter's aim is to speak to these elders because he knew that the role of an elder in the midst of cultural chaos or in the midst of very difficult circumstances is incredibly important. Elders lead the church, and they're indispensable to the life and the ministry they're indispensable to the care and the nurturing 
of God's people. So that's who leads the church, elders. Secondly, what do elders do? Well, verse 2 gives this, gives this to us very clearly. They are to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So it's pretty apparent what are elders supposed to do. They're supposed to shepherd, and they're supposed to exercise oversight. Now, before we unpack those two words, notice a couple other things. He says, shepherd the flock of God, which is a good reminder that the flock belongs to God. It's his. College Park Church is his. You're his people. And, and the elders that serve, we're, we're just simply the under-shepherds. And it, it's good to be reminded on a regular basis that there's something bigger that's happening here than any of us. This isn't my church. It's not our elders' church. This is God's church that we happen to be the stewards of. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, which means that there is a, a close proximity between elders and the congregation. Part of the reason why our, our next door mission model is the way that it is with having churches that eventually become self-governing with their own elders that move from self-supporting, self-shepherding, to self-governing, and Fishers is on that track, and Castleton will be on that track. One of the reasons that we do that is because we don't think that North Indy elders can shepherd in Fishers if they're not there. They need real elders on the ground to be able to shepherd and care for people, and that the Word of God, maybe you could start by communicating it through video, but over the long haul, church is best, and church eldership is best when it's local, personal, congregational, and on mission. And so part of our model is informed by even what we see here in 1 Peter chapter 5. Church leadership can't be effectively accomplished at a long distance. Now Peter uses the word shepherd. Let's unpack that word. In verse 2, he uses the word in order to highlight the particular kind of leadership that elders are to provide. The word here suggests not only leadership, but also guidance and authority especially as it relates to caring for the sheep. It's the same kind of language that Jesus used in John 21 when he restored Peter, and he asked Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, you know I do. And Jesus said, tend my lambs, or feed my sheep, or shepherd my sheep. It's, it's the same concept that Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 when he says that they are to care for the church of God. That word care and the word shepherd, they're the exact same word. So you could replace the word shepherd with the word care. Elders are essentially to care for the people, or even better, to care for the souls of the people that are underneath their watch. Now a really bad example of this, and a negative example, is found in the Old Testament, where it says this, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them, so they are scattered because there was no shepherd. That's, it's not Exodus, actually Ezekiel chapter 34, verses four to five. The idea is that self-centeredness and domineering and overly authoritativeness is not the posture of shepherds. They're to lead by caring for the sheep, that they're to care for people's souls. Here's another text in Hebrews 13 that has really informed even what as elders we've done over the last two years. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. That's primarily what elders are charged with, as those who will have to give an account. And let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now this passage is really helpful for two reasons. First, it helps us know that elders are gonna have to give an account. 
I'm going to stand before Christ and give an accounting of how I've shepherded you. Our elders are going to have to give an account. That text says that we have a level of responsibility that we shepherd you and do so in a way knowing that we're going to be held accountable. But it also means that you're going to be held accountable. So we're accountable for how we shepherd, and you're accountable for how you live. The text says, let them do so with joy and not with groaning. What that means is this. As our elders pray through the list, you want to be the kind of person that when we come to your name, and I'm going to use my own last name, the Vrogops, and you come to the Vrogops, that you want the elders going, God, thank you for the Vrogops. Thank you for their grace. Thank you for their godliness. You do not want elders coming to your name and saying, oh, the Vrogops. Oh, Lord bless them. Mmm, what do I pray, Lord? Move them? No, I shouldn't pray that. Um, strike? No, strike them. Um, just bless them somehow. You, you, don't want, you don't want the pause to be over your name. That's unprofitable for you. See, the Bible indicates that there is this relationship between the elders and the congregation where there is this mutual concern for spiritual growth and this commitment to follow after Jesus together. So shepherd, they're also, it says, to exercise oversight. Here's another Greek word. It's the Greek word episkopos. So again, you've got Presbyterian, you've got episcopal, another form of government that comes out of this, different than what we have as a church. This word means authority. The idea is that those who care not only care for the souls, but that they also have a position of authority and responsibility. Interestingly, the word is used in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 for the role of elders. So what happens is that the word shepherd and the word for authority are nearly synonymous. So these two texts, 1 Peter 5 and Hebrews 13 have informed what we as elders have been working on for the last two years. And part of the reason we've been studying this and working on this and trying to do something, some of which you may have noticed, is because there's an Achilles heel that large churches have. There's some awesome things about being a large church, some great things that we can accomplish together, but the Achilles heel of a large church is that the scale and the scope of ministry makes individual shepherding more challenging. In, in a smaller church, like I served in previously, I, I could look out at the congregation, and like you, people sit in the same spots and things of that sort, and I could probably know who's here or who is it. but in a larger church, that's harder to know. As well, it's easier to slip in and kind of slip out, and church can be a place that you go instead of a place that you belong. And so our elders have been thinking, what do we do in order to fulfill this calling to shepherd? If we're called to shepherd, then how do we do that? Instead of what often happens in large churches, the elders simply become like a board of directors, and all they deal with are you know, budgets and bodies and bucks and buses and any other bees you can think of. And they just try and deal with all of the structural things instead of spending time shepherding God's people. Here's what we've done. Our elders determined that the main group that we're responsible for, the first group, the primary group, are those who are members of our church. Meaning that these are the people who have covenanted together and said, I want to be underneath the authority of the elders. I've covenanted together to have my life in harmony with these other believers. And so we realize that our, the first group of people, the primary group that we're going to be responsible for, are those who are members. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're not a member that we won't help you or pray for you. Like, if you come up and say, hey, can you pray for me? I'm not going to say... Are you a member or not? 
So give you a good prayer or a bad prayer, depending on if you're a member or not. I'm not going to do that. We're going to care for you if you're not a member. But biblically, we think we have a different level of accountability for those who are our members. And so that's one of the reasons why we set out over the last couple of years, I'm sure you've noticed, sort of raise the awareness of church membership, help you understand what the covenant means, even going through covenant renewal or covenant member update, to know, so who really are our members and are they even here? And how do we care for now the 2,422 members that make North Indy their home? We also began thinking about a definition of shepherding. And this definition is a, a bit of a matrix. I don't want you to get overwhelmed by this, but essentially we have four key words. Notice the top. We think that shepherding is knowing, feeding, leading, and protecting. Those are the basic responsibilities of shepherding. And then we do that on the left side of the column in two ways, with macro-shepherding and micro-shepherding. And then we look at everything in the ministry that we do under this particular rubric. So when you think of what it means for macro-shepherding and micro-shepherding, let me just help you understand what that means. Macro-shepherding means that part of being good shepherds is that we do a good job with governance. That who we are as a church, legally, financially, ethically, is exactly what it should be. At the same time, that macro-shepherding part is really important, formalized church membership, good policies and procedures. On the other side, though, is micro-shepherding. Individual people, knowing what's going on in their lives. And the beginning of the year, we changed our elder meetings, and I think you would be encouraged by this, that half of our elder meeting is spent in micro-shepherding, praying for our people, meeting together, talking about what's going on in the spiritual lives of our body, and then the other half that we're trying to get smaller and smaller is this, this macro shepherding piece so that our elders are spending as much time just shepherding individually as they are dealing with governance issues. One of the reasons that we resist even the word bored is not just because it sounds boring, but because of the fact that as elders we're gathering together as a council, and it's not a board of directors like at a business, that there's a, there's a different model in terms of even how we conduct ourselves and then at the same time, we have this scale that's really large, and so what we've done is we've broken the congregation down into various regions, or even calling them parishes, based upon where our people live and having elders that are assigned to each of these regions, so at the end of the day, we know which members are under whose care in the scope of this ministry. In fact, I serve in the Northwest Indy Parish. That's where my family lives, and this is my um, Northwest Indy elder book. So I have the pictures and the names of people who are a part of my parish, and these are the people who I'm walking through along with our staff and our elders praying for on a regular basis. And when there's challenges or issues or when people join the church, they come through this parish model in order to help our elders not only do a better job shepherding, but they answer the critical question, who is primarily responsible for the oversight of these particular people? All of this is an attempt for us to fulfill the calling and 1 Peter chapter 5, of what it means to shepherd the flock of God. Additionally, all of our elders are responsible to provide some kind of oversight to small groups, whether that's through a coach or directly mentoring small group leaders, because we believe that small groups are a vital part of the shepherding framework for our church. All of that to say, and I know some of this is really technical, but it's really important for you to know that our vision of what it means to be a church, even a large church, is not just to be big and have you come, but we want you to come so that then you can belong and get involved, so that then you can have someone watching over your soul and then to be deployed back out into the world. Our vision, even of what it means to be a large church, is to still fulfill this calling to shepherd you as elders. Or I'll just understand that this basic biblically 
this biblical mandate and model is to shepherd by caring for you and by exercising oversight. And by grace, I'm just encouraged because I see this happening in new ways in our church. Here's the third question. How then do church leaders lead? Verses two to four identify some key particular adjectives that need to describe these elders. Verse two says that they are to exercise oversight not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So a couple ways that elders are to lead. They're to lead wholeheartedly. The idea is they, they ought not to lead regretfully. And the, and the reason this is important, they need to be all in because elders are going to make sacrifices. They're gonna face some level of opposition. They need to feel the compelling call of God to serve in this way because what elders do is they step into problems and often they're messy problems. And when they do, a reluctant elder will not stay in the battle when it becomes challenging. I was having a conversation with a, pastor not too long ago and he's having some challenges going on in his church and I reminded him I said brother this is why God called you for pastoral work pastors run to problems in people's lives and so to be able to do so they need to do so wholeheartedly another angle on this is that elders are to do it not for shameful gain but they're to do it eagerly in other words elders are not supposed to serve because of what they get out of it in terms of fame or greed. They're to be motivated by their love for Jesus and their love from the, for the church, not what they gain out of their position. So they're to lead wholeheartedly. They're also to lead humbly. The text says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of, or to, rather, the flock. In other words, they're not to use their authority in a domineering manner. They're not to oppress people or use their authority in a manner that doesn't fit with the model of Jesus. It can be tempting to try and use your position to sort of get your way. I was thinking that, I think it was year two in ministry, there was a decision that I needed to make and it affected negatively one of our deacons, in particular something that a deacon's wife wanted to do. And I'll never forget, I was sitting in my office and she was not happy about a decision that I said, I'm sorry, but we can't do that. There's reasons, I explained it to her, but she wasn't buying it. And eventually she said to me, you do realize, don't you, that I'm a deacon's wife? And I was like, la-dee-da, you know, so. <laughs> and what she was trying to do in that moment was trying to pull from this authoritative position to be able to get her way about something that she wanted. See, that just doesn't fit with the biblical model. And then finally, we're to lead in a way that's accountable. It says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The idea is that Jesus is the chief shepherd, that there's a coming day of future accountability, and there's also a day of future reward. The fact that he says you will receive the unfading crown of glory indicates that there's something in the new heavens and the new earth where elders who have served faithfully receive an enduring reward. And therefore they are to lead with this reality in mind. Godly elders understand that all of the authority, all of the honor, all the opportunity that they have been given comes as a derivative from the authority of Jesus himself. And so they are to lead with that sort of mindset. 
I've walked you through all of this because I, I want you to understand what the role of the elders are. I want you to understand that when godly elders are in the right seats and they're able to make the right decisions for the sake of the church, that, that that's a beautiful and, and marvelous thing. I also want you to know that, that, that at the end of the day, the, the, the sole responsibility for guiding and directing our church rests with, with a group of, of, of men who will gather even on Monday evening. And there are some things that, that I want you to do in respect of those particular men and to how do you think about them and what should you do in light of this text. So here's some things that I'm asking you to do. Number one, I'm asking you to pray for your elders. Can I encourage you to take some time this weekend to pray specifically for them? We list them all by name on the church's website. The picture is there. And, and friends, we need your prayers. We need wisdom. We need strength. You see, it's not just that elders get the opportunity to step into ungodly situations. They have to step into ungodly situations and still be godly. That's hard. You're asked to deal with very difficult things, sticky issues, emotional challenges, just think, for instance, of the time when you heard a friend blew it morally and how that just weighed on your soul. And now imagine that, that you hear that, not just once, but you hear that three or four or five times over the course of the year. And that begins to stick in your heart and you get weary and discouraged and you begin to wonder sometimes, does anybody want to be godly? And I want you to pray, pray that we would be encouraged, pray that we would see the vision of what God is doing and realize that elders carry unusual burdens and they need your prayers. They have unusual targets on their backs. Here's the second thing. I would exhort you to follow your elders. Based on what Hebrews 13 says, while elders are not perfect, the Bible commands us to have our normative posture towards those in spiritual authority to be one of a willing and joyful following. That means that when you become a member of our church, that you do what you can to support that vision of shepherding, to be able to care for one another, to do the very best that you can to help build up the body of Christ, to not be one whose name creates a groan in the heart of the elders. If you wanna do something, and I have people ask me that. I had someone ask me that after first service. What can we do for the elders? Here's my standard answer. Be godly and don't ever make it on the church discipline committee report. <laughs> I'm serious. Follow Jesus. If you're a man, love your wife. Be godly. Be pure. You're a godly woman. Love your children. Help your husband to follow Jesus and finish strong all the way to the end. Be a person who at your funeral, we say, this brother or sister made it. God Thank you that they've made it all the way to the end. You want to do something for our elders? Do that. Be a godly man or woman who follows Jesus all the days of your life. And here's the third. The third thing. Here's a challenge. I want to issue a challenge for you to aspire to be an elder. 1 Timothy 3 says, If someone aspires to the office of elder, he aspires to a noble task. In other words, it's good to want to be an elder. And if we're going to fulfill our shepherding mission, if God continues to bring more people, we're going to need many more elders. We have a projection of how many we need, and we believe that we need more. And so therefore, on my heart today are young men. 
maybe even middle-aged and older men, but especially young men, I want to give you a vision and realize that you are the future elders of this church or maybe another church if God were to move you. And I want you to be the kind of person who lives a godly life such that the fruit of your life is so evident that people around you, elders, those in spiritual authority, would tap you on the shoulder and say, brother, we like what's going on in your life. We're pleased with the fruit that's coming out. And we think you're ready to be responsible for the greatest global mission that God has entrusted to us on earth, and that is the church. There is no greater entity. In fact, I I give a little speech every year at the beginning of a new season of eldering, and I essentially say to our elders, look around the room, because at the end of the day, Every decision related to the health and the nurturing and the shepherding of this body of believers, College Park Church, the expression of Christ's bride, it will only be found in the context of this room. We are it. And I want the sober reality to sort of kind of sink onto our shoulders so that our elders will continue to follow Jesus. And I pray that God would raise up a generation of godly men who would pursue Jesus with such vigor and such passion that your godliness would be obvious and that you would aspire to be the kind of person who would have the credibility and the opportunity to lead God's church. Some of you, you're close, and you just need to keep growing, keep going in godliness. Others of you need to hear this message even as a little bit of a rebuke, and you know there's no way right now where I am I'd even be qualified. And brother, that ought to change. You ought to use today's message as an opportunity to say, you know, I'd love to aspire to be a godly man and to be with other godly men, to follow after Jesus and give guidance and direction to his church. And as a result, maybe today would be a moment for you even to make a turn and embrace an attitude and a spirit of repentance. My life's been marked by a constellation of wonderful men who have poured deeply into me. And since serving here now at College Park for the last nine years, I'm grateful for the men that I get to serve with, men who've impacted my children, men who've been there in difficult moments, men who've who've called me out on things when I've been wrong, addressed blind spots, and help us to be a church that better fits with the model of what Jesus wants for his bride. I am deeply grateful for the men that have given themselves to serve you, to serve me in that context. And I hope that you're grateful for them as well because as we navigate a difficult culture, we need godly men who are gonna be in the right place, in the right seat, to make the right decisions in order to take seriously the call of what it means to shepherd the flock of God. The church needs godly elders and we ought to pray for that, lean into that, and thank God when he supplies that to us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the hope of this text and the meaning of having the word shepherd characterize those who give leadership to this body. Lord, we pray that you would raise up more godly elders from our ranks. Pray that you would do that at Fishers. Pray that you would do that at Castleton. That, God, we could be able to have brothers who walk alongside us, who help us to know how to follow after you. We pray that you would make Our elders, the kind of men full of wisdom, full of purity, and full of truth. 
Lord, we, we long for you to return and we long for you to pronounce over this body that we were faithful with what you entrusted to us. So, Lord, give us grace. Pray for men who on this day need to perhaps catch a vision of what it could be in their life to be selected for this high calling. And Lord, I pray specifically for young men that you would raise up an army of godly, vibrant young men to follow you and serve as an elder of a church. Oh, Lord, help us. This body belongs to you. Help us to shepherd the flock of God, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.